Welcome to Fresh Takes on the Future of Work. We are focused on fresh perspectives from business and HR leaders about the future of work. Fresh is an acronym for freedom, resourcefulness, empathy, simplicity, and happiness. Values core to operating in the future of work. We'll tie back to these while exploring interesting stories and actionable ideas. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jess Pagoni, co-founder and CEO of Luna, a technology for the modern employer, enabling flexibility and choice to meet employees where they are today and in the future. Bottom line, we create alignment between work and life to attract, engage, and retain talent in today's competitive market. Our guest today is Natalie Egan. Natalie is an openly transgender serial entrepreneur and mom of three. As CEO and founder of Translator, she is on a mission to scale empathy and equality through technology. Natalie has over 20 years of experience driving digital change, developing high-performing teams, building complex products, and selling enterprise solutions. Natalie, thanks so much for being here. Awesome. Thanks, Jess. Uh, hi, everyone. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Just to kind of formally introduce myself, my name is Natalie Egan. Obviously, my, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm the CEO of a company called Translator, where we build a social learning technology focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, it's actually like for live groups of people to learn together. So we always say with Translator, we learn together. But it's designed to kind of create difficult conversations and, and provide technology to help facilitate that and, and you know, do a lot of data analysis on people's needs and intersectional identities, things like that. It's all anonymous, so nobody has to worry about that. Thank you for having me and excited to have a great conversation. Natalie, there was so much packed into what you just shared that I feel like we're going to have to pull that apart over the next handful of minutes. As we sit here today, we've just celebrated Mother's Day in the U.S. I'd love if you could share some more just about about you as a mom, your experience as a mom, your experience as a working mom, as a CEO, and let's kind of start there, and then we'll we'll find our way through all the things that you just presented for us. What a great way to start the conversation! It's it's sort of a a topic that is important to me as, as a trans woman uh, and as someone who identifies as a mom, as a maternal figure. Just Mother's Day in and of itself can be challenging. I think it's challenging for all types of women and moms for all kinds of reasons. The trans experience of that is another slice of, of the challenge puzzle. But, you know, obviously, women for all kinds of reasons, Mother's Day is challenging. You know, maybe they can't have kids. Maybe they haven't had kids yet. Maybe they have a challenging relationship with their kids or a challenging relationship with their mom. In particular, for me, I, I don't have the ability to have my own children biologically the way many women do, but many women are born without uteruses or, you know, all kinds of challenges where they can't have babies themselves, but they still identify as moms. So, you know, for me, I identify as mom. Some people have challenges with that. I think Mother's Day is really about celebrating, you know, the person who plays that role. And, you know, for the other 364 days of the year is oftentimes not acknowledged for those maternal duties that they take on. And I love that part of my life. You know, I love being a mom. I love playing the role of a mom. I love everything about it. In fact, I did a podcast like two weeks ago and the opening question was, tell us what you wanted to be when you grow up. 
you know, when you were a little kid. And it was really kind of hit me pretty hard. We hadn't scripted any of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like really fascinating question. I always, I, when I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was be a mom, which is really interesting because as I was assigned male at birth and I came from a lot of privilege, relatively speaking, and good sort of structure around me that at least in good in the sense that it told me that I could be anything I wanted to be when I grew up. So the irony of it is like, they were telling me, you can be anything you want to be except for what you really want to be. And it's sort of interesting to have that duality now. You know, I, I tell people all the time, like, I, I'd rather just be a stay-at-home mom, but I have this responsibility of this company that I've started. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with survival and, and all kinds. There's all kinds of reasons I do this also because it's, you know, trying to make the world a better place, like actually. But yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather be like a stay-at-home mom, put my kids on the school bus every morning and make their lunches and pick them up when they're sick and take them to sports games and, you know, make sure that they're dressed and like all the things, like I just love, I love the nurturing aspect. I love to make them food. So as a kid, when you thought of like, well, what do I want to be? I, I want to be a mom. What did that feel like to you? Was it, was it really that nurturing side of motherhood that was drawing you or did, did you have a sense then that you were different, that you, you wanted something different than those around you perhaps? Well, I mean, it felt impossible, right? Like it didn't feel like a possibility as a five-year-old in like 1982, that was not possible. Like there, and there was no representation. There was, there's that saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Like, well, that, that was not around me. And so it was very challenging, but more specifically to answer the other part of the question, like, how did I know? I mean, I, I wanted to have babies. I would, you know, wear like a big t-shirt and stick a pillow up and look to see what it was like if I was pregnant. And I always felt like, like wrong. You know, like it felt like a sin, like, but I couldn't, I was so compelled to do it. You know, I didn't understand why any of this stuff until about, honestly, like six years ago when I figured all of this out and people are like, what do you mean? I mean, I, I literally figured it out six years ago. I didn't know I was trans. I had been repressing it my whole life. I knew I was different. Like to your point, I just didn't have words for, it. I didn't have language. I didn't understand what it was. And so I like buried it under layers of masculinity and, and and I couldn't even see it. One of the things that you you mentioned is you'd love to be a stay-at-home mom. At the same time, you are, for all intents and purposes, a high-powered executive at this point. You, you're a serial entrepreneur, two-time CEO. You've built now two great companies that I, I believe are and have made the world a better place. Kudos to you. But what you're highlighting, I think, is a struggle that a lot of women, especially working women, face, that it is really challenging because you want to be there to like pick out the cute outfit, get your, you know, have your kid wear that, you know, perfect t-shirt on that perfect school spirit day or whatever. And as I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, it's spirit week at my kid's school and I totally forgot to do anything for whatever today was. So here we are. Yet at the same time, you're like, I need to work or I, I have to work or I am driven to make this world better. And that struggle is something that's very polarizing, I think, within a lot of people who identify as women and, and women in the, the workplace and has probably resulted in a lot of the exodus that has happened. You know, 12 million women have left the workforce in the last 12 to 18 months. What's your take on that? Like, or how do you reconcile it? How do you stay driven at work while also engaged as a mom? 
Uh, I mean, it's, it's really hard, as you can imagine, as most people probably know. It's a balance I have to strike, but it doesn't oftentimes feel balanced. And I oftentimes feel like a bad mom for not getting the spirit day stuff. I feel like my kids are missing out on a lot of opportunities as a result of my intersectional identity. I mean, I, I'm not only a trans woman, but I'm, you know, the, another part of that intersection is that I'm single, right? So I don't have a partner to, to support me. So when I have the kids, it's full on mom mode. And I try and be as present as I can and probably overcompensate in ways that are not particularly healthy. We're all guilty of that, by the way. I do have moments where I be like, wow, I'm, I'm a really great mom. You know, like I'm really, I'm good at this. I, because I am. And there's certain things I'm better at than others, for sure. And I always sort of dream like, wow, it would be so great if I had a partner who could help me and then I could be even better mom and probably be a better CEO too. But like, I basically have to code shift between the two. And, you know, the times when I have the kids, like work takes more of a backseat. And then when they go to bed or, or sometimes very early in the morning before they get up, you know, that's when I have to get my stuff done. Uh, or in that sort of short pocket of time that they go to school, which seems very short. <laughs> it's like, wow, they weren't at school very long. <laughs> but I, you know, I have to be more creative. And then when they're gone, it, it's actually quite awful, right? I mean, it's just empty. The house is empty. It's lonely. You know, and then I overcompensate. I fill it with work. And then I start over again. In both situations, I'm overcompensating and I never really get time for myself. There's no self-care. I haven't taken a vacation in like seven years. You know, I've gone places with my kids for their benefit to, you know, spring break, but it's not a vacation. Like I want to go sit on a beach by myself or with like a good friend. I could use that. So self-care, I, I find like mini self-care moments, but that's about it. Which are helpful, but sometimes you need those bigger moments to to actually get the respite, the reprieve. And I guess it all comes down to it's complicated at the end of the day to be to be a mom in any capacity and there's there's all sorts of dynamics that are at play between work and life that make it super challenging and i think a lot of the conversation of late has been about how can people at work be better supported to feel maybe less of the like failure or guilt on the home side and more success on the work side as well and I don't know that there's a perfect answer, but it, it feels like the conversation is getting louder. And I, I definitely appreciate and value that. Natalie, I'm curious about your, your kids and their, their experience as you transitioned. How did you walk them through that? How did you support them to help understand they get, they get another mom and this, you know, a beautiful, caring, empathetic figure in their life? What was that like for you and for them? That's still ongoing and it's been challenging, but it's been rewarding. Big picture, fortunately, things are changing a lot, right? Like doing what I've done five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, like each is very different. And, and it also depends on the age of your kids. Fortunately for me, you know, I came out six years ago. So, you know, go back six years. Like that was sort of the beginning of the, the, the revolution, the trans revolution, as you saw in like sort of newspaper cover of Time magazine. and. National Geographic and, you know, all these things were sort of, it was the very beginning of this, but, it, you know, if you were to come out today, it's a, it's a little bit easier than it was six years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And then again, the age of your kids is, does really matter. I'm a member of a Facebook group with like 15,000 trans women in it and like thousands of stories are being shared. And I'm sort of 
not reading them all, but I, you know, I glance at them and, you know, I see all these stories and, you know, thankfully it's not problematic or challenging or stigmatized as it used to be. I mean, more and more kids are like, okay, like, great. What are your pronouns? You know, but that's not always the case. I mean, I know a, a friend of mine who recently came out. She's about my age in the mid forties and her 22 year old daughter and 26 year old son, approximately those ages, won't talk to her at all. And, you know, she's, she's not invited to her daughter's wedding. You know, it's so sad. My children who are currently aged, you know, 16 and 14 and eight, you know, rewind or sorry, not eight. She's, he's, he's about to turn 10. I'm my, my youngest. But when I came out, they were six years younger, respectively. So, you know, 10, eight and four. And like, that's a great time if there is a time, like, cause they're much more, um, you know, open, you know, they're not, they don't have the construct baggage of, you know, if they're older, it was hard probably for my oldest son. You know, he had a pretty strong relationship, relatively speaking with my old, you know, paternal identity, I guess I could call it. But once we got through the initial kind of challenges, our relationship is better than ever. Um, same thing with my daughter. Like, I used to really like kind of butt heads with my daughter. I used to joke and tell people would say like, how's your daughter? I'd be like, she's the devil. And they thought I was joking. And I was like, no, I'm not joking. We hate each other. But, you know, we're like best friends. It's been a process. It still is a process. Like there's still things, there's little nuances, parts of their identities and their relationships that I try to honor and respect. You know, it's sad, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to embarrass them, you know, but like more and more they're okay, you know, in the world with me, like in the, in the early days, it was challenging because people would stare at us. I remember I went to like a cafe once, you know, and this kid just couldn't stop staring. It was early in my transition too. He just couldn't stop staring at me. And, you know, and he was talking to a sibling about me and it was, it was very awkward. And my, my family, my kids were sitting right there. And the coolest thing actually in that moment, my youngest son, instead of being embarrassed or running away, he like, it's almost like he overcompensated and just started being really loving with me and like kind of crawling all over me and almost like just set an example to be like, this is totally normal. It was super cool. Kids are amazing. It took a lot of courage, I'm sure, for you and for your kids to get to where you are today. And um, thank you for, sh- for sharing that part of your story. So tell us, Natalie, about Translator, your company. You, you launched it in 2016, I believe. And uh, tell us a little bit more about what you do and how you are creating more empathy and equity in the world. The whole company is based on my experience coming out as a trans woman. And the idea, as you mentioned earlier, is like, how do we scale empathy through technology? It's all based on my sort of personal experience. You know, prior to my transition, I, I lacked total self-awareness. I mean, I had no self-awareness. You know, I was sort of living in a bubble of white male privilege with access and resources and didn't have my own identity. So I sort of became what everybody else wanted me to be. And as a result of that, I just didn't have self-awareness and therefore had no empathy. I had sympathy. I felt bad for people, but I didn't have empathy. Like I didn't know what it was like. I couldn't walk in their shoes because I had like come from a background with a lot of struggling, except for probably the struggle of my identity. And so when I came out as a trans woman in 2016, the way I, the sort of shortcut way of saying it is I experienced bias, discrimination, and hatred for the first time in my life at like age 38, you know, and I was very cognitive of it, right? It was a big shift. It was kind of like, you know, I became this like overnight minority. And, and a very misunderstood one, by the way, uh, on top of that. So oftentimes when I talk about my, my journey to becoming Natalie is also my journey to empathy. I used that experience, 
you know, for good in the sense that like, I sort of had this realization, I'm like, oh my gosh, right? Like, this is awful, right? Like what most of the world has to experience, like not just trans people or trans women, but just women or people that are different, you know, that aren't at the center of power, right? Like black people, brown people, like depending on where we are in the world, like, you know, in particular in, in America, like that, you know, there's people at the center of power, which is where I was. I was sort of in the 1% of the 1%. And I went all of a sudden, I was on the other side of that, like the 1% of the 1% of the marginalized, even though that's probably not true at all. It felt like it at the time. You know, I still have a lot of privilege today, but I kind of felt like, okay, I need to do something about this. Like, you know, academically and theoretically, I knew these things before, but I'd never lived it. And I was like, wow, this is, I need to do something about this. And so I kind of said to myself, I'm going to, and I lost like basically everything, right? I had nothing to lose more or less. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try and do something about this. I'm just going to use what I have left to, to try and solve this problem of inequality or inequity is really the proper word. So I decided I was going to build technology to help us understand each other better. Like that was the original idea. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I just said, you know, there's a huge gap. There's a huge problem. People don't understand each other. And what I quickly realized is like, we can't understand each other better until we understand ourselves first, right? And I was sort of living proof of that. Like, I didn't understand my, it probably an extreme case, but like everybody has a little bit of that. And so I sort of, you know, started to model this whole thing, this whole technology, you know, to become like a self-awareness technology that's designed to help you understand your own identity and your own lived experience first. And then that becomes like sort of a gateway to learn about other people's identities and other people's lived experience. So is it sort of like a simulator? Like, do you simulate other experiences in the technology or is it an opportunity to, how do you get that empathy by engaging with the tech? Yeah, so we explored simulations and things, and there are stuff out there that's like that, but this is like even more basic than that because like, a simulation isn't like walking in someone else's shoes. If you're not ready to walk in their shoes, then it doesn't really mean anything to you. So what I did to start this company, and it was very similar to my previous company, was you know, I basically started to study diversity, equity, and inclusion as a as a business function, right? I sort of realized, okay, like this is a really big lever that if we if I can provide digital transformation and automation and workflow and data and reporting and analytics around DEI, then we could really actually make change in the world using corporations and large organizations, schools, et cetera, as the deliverer of that. And so I went to work studying DEI and said, like, well, what can we improve with technology? And if you kind of rewind six years ago, which is when I started, I started the company when I, the day I announced the company when I came out publicly. So it was like, by the way, I'm Natalie and here's my new company. Um, so it was kind of a, and I showed up at my 20 year reunion, by the way, in high school, my 20 year high school reunion that day. So it was like, you know, that's a whole nother podcast, but I mean, go big or go home, Natalie. Like that was like yeah. a trifecta day for you. Yeah, yeah. And I switched from Android to Apple that day too, just to like really <laughs> mess it up. Like, I'm not joking about that. That was the most confusing part of it. actually. <laughs> uh, for me, you know, I, I sort of realized that we need to improve DEI. And at the time, six years ago, it was so antiquated, right? It was like, it was like archaic what was happening, right? I mean, there was great people out there doing all this incredible work that had zero scale, 
and no way of mechanism of reporting on it. In 2016, in the U.S. alone, according to McKinsey, corporations spent $8 billion on DEI training. In 2016, like that was like, like that was like a long time ago relative to like where we are today. That feels so large compared to what it felt like people were doing back then. And it was all service, you know, like it wasn't, there was no technology underneath it. And so I was like, okay, well, we need to give these people tools to scale their work. And so that's, you know, what the original kind of idea was like, let's build technology tools for DEI professionals. And that's what we do today. We didn't know exactly what it was going to look like at the time, but, you know, it's evolved. Um, and basically think of it as like, well, kind of like I said, like a set of tools for DEI trainers that is designed to help amplify and enhance the DEI learning experience. So there's still a trainer, there's still curriculum, but there's a technology overlay that's designed to kind of like, I don't want to say gamify it, but like elevate it, right? Got and it. make it more effective. And the exercises are tried and true DEI exercises that are not simulations, but journeys in and of themselves to help you understand your own identity. And so what we basically did in the early days is we kind of looked at all these DEI exercises that were out there. There's like hundreds of them. And we started to digitize them. You know, they're designed for self-reflection and self-awareness. And they, they're quite simple, actually, at, at the core, because they used to be done in person. Like, for example, it's like, take this sticky note and stick it on the wall, like with the state, you know, if you agree with the statement or, you know, turn to your neighbor and complete this, you know, complete these three sentences, right? You know, kind of like Mad Libs, like fill in the blank. And they're just designed to get people talking and aware and in relationship with themselves and with each other. The original exercise that we digitized that has become one of our most popular was an exercise called the walk of privilege. So I don't know if you're familiar with that exercise. You know, it used to be done in person, still is. So, you know, I mean, COVID is, is starting, you know, to recede a little bit. So people out in the world are doing it. If we were in person, I would line, you know, let's say we had 50 people in the training, I would line everybody up shoulder to shoulder. And I would read statements like step forward if both your parents went to college or step backwards if you have a visible or invisible disability. And it's a super powerful exercise, but it's also highly problematic because it, it outs people, you know, and shames people for their privilege or their lack of privilege, right? It's distracting, right? You're focused on other people's privilege, not your own. The original research by Peggy McIntosh called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, which is the original research behind this was just hypothetical questions designed to ask yourself. So you just reflect and just ask yourself this question. And it was turned into this sort of exercise over time by trainers, which has its problems, right? So all the things that I just listed, it's also an ableist exercise that assumes you can stand and walk. And then, you know, from a technology perspective, there's nothing to show for it afterwards. Like there's no reporting, there's no data. You know, you just put through people through this like super emotional uh, experience with nothing to show for it afterwards. So we digitized it. So instead of stepping forward, you swipe forward on your phone. And it's a journey. You know, there's 35 questions that we ask, you know, swiping up and swiping down that are designed to bring back memories of your childhood and, you know, designed to make you think about other people's lived experience as opposed to your own. You know, like one of the questions is swipe down if you often feel unsafe walking home alone at night. You know, next question is, Swipe up if people in political power look like you, you know, in your community. And they're designed to kind of just make you think about all these different aspects of your identity. And, and so it's a very powerful experience. And then we have a facilitated conversation about it that the technology also helps facilitate. And so it's sort of an overlay that sits on top of, of the training. 
and we sell it to you know directly to corporations as well as third-party DEI trainers to help them do their trainings more effectively. It's pretty cool and pretty interesting stuff, and the market's good for it. So I was going to say the timing could not be better. Um, this is a critical need inside of organizations. People are feeling, I think, increasingly more isolated, and in some ways that that's created benefit for certain cultural groups within organizations and in in others it's created more divide and i think what you're doing digitizing the deni training that's available to companies is really powerful and um i'm excited about how it can help us to transform the future of work thank you and like at the core just so people understand it's it's very different than like well, you know, if there's an HR crowd here, it's not it's not LMS, right? It's not learning management software. It's not an asynchronous experience. It's designed for groups of people. And, you know, to your point, like people are feeling alone. They're feeling isolated on an island. You know, we're kind of kind of returning to work right now, but you know, the future of work, which is is, you know, very much a hybrid, right? And so part of the value of our solution, which we find is very interesting, is that it just helps people get to know each other better. Right? Yeah. It's like a structured way for more and more of our clients are saying, this is great for all the DEI stuff. And by the way, like, you know, a third of our employees have never met in person and probably aren't anytime soon. So this, this gives them a structured way to get them in relationship with, with in relation with each other and, and help them uh, understand their own identities first. And then I think the big thing is that it helps the company understand their employees. And that's, that's where like the empathetic organization, it, you know, it starts to become real, right? Like you can't have empathy if, if you don't understand your own identity first. The same thing is true for corporations. So, you know, if you don't understand your employees, how can you retain them? How can yeah. you engage them? How can you get them to refer their peers to come work for you if you treat them all the same and act like, you know, like everyone's crazy? cookie cutters. Yeah, exactly. Guess what? We're not, right? Like, right. And we want to be seen and heard and valued and respected. And that's what this technology does. It's great. From a, a Luna standpoint, we we talk a lot about how flexibility means something different to every person and it changes over time. So so even acknowledging that like, hey, people are all different and also what they need or what they're experiencing at work can evolve because life changes. Life, you know, six years ago you had a major life change. Like that altered the way you engaged at work, certainly. So other people experience lots of similar things that are that are also creating a, a need for for that empathy and uh, ongoing dialogue. So r- really cool what you're doing. I want to switch over. So typically on the podcast, Natalie, I ask these five questions. I don't know if we're going to have time for all five, but I want to get your answers on a couple of them just because I... I'm loving this conversation. First one I want to ask is, if you had a magic wand, what is one thing you would want to see change about work life right now? At a meta level, one thing I'm super passionate about is you know, the trans and gender non-conforming identity in the workplace. We're coming out. like we are like the numbers are, will continue to grow. And there's a lot of stigma around our identity in the workplace. And if I could change one thing, People would see us as as the same way they see everyone else, and not some outlier uh, or or some sort of liability or challenge or problem. Or that people see us as as mentally ill, they see us as not real. 
people think of me as just a gay man. You know, there's all kinds of issues. Um, and if I could wave a magic wand, I would just make all that go away. We are making progress, thankfully. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that in, you know, you know, if you just look forward in increments, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I'm hoping that we've achieved something like what you might call the, the gay community, or, which would include potentially the lesbian community. But but like the you know gay male communities become pretty accepted in corporate culture and in in the workplace still a lot of work to do there but you know 15 20 years ago you know i the stories i've heard one of my great friends came out like in like the 80s and like death threats you know like he opened his desk drawer and there was literally a death threat in his drawer at at, at work that would never happen today you know like theory, you know depending on again for him, where he works and that kind of stuff. So I would like to achieve that type of acceptance and inclusion and a celebration. That would be awesome. It would be awesome. So as far as fresh takes go, so freedom, resourcefulness, empathy, simplicity, and happiness, which area, we might already know the answer here, but which area do you see as the most pressing right now as we think about the future of work and that evolving employer-employee dynamic? I can't say anything else but empathy, right? I mean, that's, that's right. I think empathy is, will help us solve all the other problems. If we can truly scale empathy through technology and realize that we're all one, right, which we are, we would stop this infighting, which is, is preventing us from actually solving real problems in the world. That's how we're going to solve global warming and clean water and all the issues that we have is we just have to get along. And right now, like too much of our resources are pointed at fighting with each other. And what's happening in the world right now is is actually appropriate for where we are in the evolution. Like these are times of great change. Like it's stressful and it's hard and it's like really challenging and people are going to get hurt. People are dying. But like, it's actually appropriate for, you know, if we want to get to where we need to get to, like, this is what has to happen. Like this, this stuff that's really hard right now is, is we need these things to be hard, which will create conflict, but hopefully over time, you know, we can get through this and then actually solve all the other problems. Um, Beautifully said. I love it. For managers, people leading people in the workplace, is there any tip, suggestion, recommendation you could give to them, perhaps to how can you be more empathetic in your day to day? How would you help them lead better in the new world of work today? First and foremost, like you have to do the work, right? It's not going to happen for you. You know, hopefully your company can like kind of corral you into these things. But at the end of the day, like you have to show up, like your participation matters. Like I have a couple like hashtag like participation matters, right? So you need to participate. You need to get involved. Like you have to like show up to the trainings. You have to show, you have to show up to read the book. You have to show up and and be a part of the conversation. So I'd say hashtag participation matters. Uh, second, I would say hashtag representation matters, right? So representation matters that if you do the work, you'll learn about representation, what that means. But representation, you know, means many things. This is representation right now on multiple levels, but, you know, in particular, for my experience, this is trans representation. Like this is storytelling. This is this is representation, but also think about like at the more tactical level, like representation on teams, right? Representation on the board of directors, you know, representation on panels. It goes back to that thing I talked about earlier. Like if you can't see it, you can't be it. And diversity, like 
wins. Like, I mean, there's tons of research out there that says like, and diversity equals representation. So if you have good representation on a board or in a meeting, making decisions, like they make better decisions, period. Diversity, you know, outperforms homogeneous teams like every time. They move slower. It takes longer to build that team, but they make better decisions. And there's a ton of research about that because they see, you know, if you have a team of, you know, diverse perspectives, somebody's going to see some risk that the other people couldn't see, right? Homogeneous teams that are like, they make decisions really fast, right? And they all high five and they're like, all right, let's go like, you know, drink beers afterwards, right? Not to use a stereotype, but like, let's just get these decisions done and, and go, right? Where a diverse team is going to take more time. So representation matters. That's the uh, second one. Language matters. So hashtag language matters. I live by this philosophy that everything happens through language, everything. Nothing can happen without language. And there's kind of a meta conversation that we would have there. Notice it has to be a conversation. Everything happens through language. And if you can just kind of hold with me for a second, just say, okay, well, let's just pretend that's true for a second, even though it is true. If everything happens through language, and we acknowledge that there's many different types of language, there's spoken language, there's written language, there's coding language, there's body language, there's all different kinds of language out there. If that's true, if everything happens through language, then our language matters, period. And the difference between inclusion and exclusion is like very subtle. It's like minutia. And that really can be the difference between retaining and engaging or, you know, disconnecting and lose, you know, and losing somebody. It's death by a thousand cuts oftentimes, but it's our body language. It's how we conduct Zoom meetings. Like there's like a Zoom language, right? That's kind of manifested through all this virtual environment. And then the last one is ally, you know, hashtag allyship matters. Like, you know, just allyship matters. And, you know, you got to do the work on this one too. You know, people, it's easy for people to say, I'm an ally. And I'll just, that right there is, is the part of the problem. Like you can't call yourself an ally. Like so, somebody else, I'll tell you if you're an ally. And my experience of you or other people's experience of you, but there's an allyship continuum. You know, sometimes people use the word spectrum, but I use, like to use continuum. It's more inclusive. There's a continuum of, of allyship, you know, it's kind of like allyship and advocacy all the way to like apathy. And people get tricked into thinking they're allies, but you're actually really probably only an ally for like one part of the diversity kind of, you know, there's, there's many different forms of diversity. So like, I happen to be a really strong advocate and an ally for the LGBT community, right? Like, like that's not an issue necessarily for me. I mean, I always want to learn and grow, but like if I do an audit, like I would ask you to do an audit of your own, you know, allyship kind of footprint and you'll realize that there's gaps, right? Like for me, people with disabilities, like that's a real challenge for me. And it goes back to like the way I was raised and like, don't stare at people if they're different from you. And I interpreted that as like less than, and I have to work on that. Like I have to make eye contact with people, you know, that have all kinds of you know differences from me. And uh, we can go deep on that subject as well. But that's something I, you know, just be vulnerable to. I have to do work there, you know, and it's always evolving, right? The language is changing. You don't say handicapped anymore, right? Uh, or, or you'd say a person with a disability or people with disabilities. You don't say a disabled person. Like somebody out there might not understand why there's a difference between those two things. And there is. The one thing that popped into my mind, there was this Facebook post, probably in like a, a parent group that I'm a part of at some point where the mom posted a picture of a tube of toothpaste 
And it was, you know, the whole thing was squeezed out onto a paper plate. So the toothpaste was all over the plate. And then the story that she attached to it was her daughter was about to start middle school. And she had her daughter squeeze out. She said, here's a tube of toothpaste, squeeze the whole thing out onto this paper plate. The daughter's like, okay, I did it. Like, mom, you're weird. Like, why are you asking me to do this? And then the mom said, okay, great. Put it back in. And the daughter was like, what are you talking about? Like, I can't put that. I can't put the toothpaste back in the the tube. Like, that's impossible. And the mom said, that's right. It's impossible. You're starting middle school. Whatever comes out of your mouth, that language that you're using at school the way you talk to people, the way you treat people, the way you help people or not, it's once it's out in the world, you cannot take it back. And that's the lesson that you need to learn. I just, it's, it struck me. And I hope I remember to use that once my kids are approaching middle school age, I'm reacting to what you were sharing and that it's very similar. Like we need to approach our work as well in a similar way. That was awesome. Thank you for sharing. Awesome. Okay. So I have one more question for you. Um, can you share one company that you admire for their fresh take, the way that they're doing things right now? Obviously, I want to normally plug Luna, um, but I think for the sake of, of this podcast, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, is are my friends over at All Voices. You know, I've had an incredible amount of respect for Claire and her vision. Uh, over there since they started. And we started sort of similar time period, you know, about five or six years ago. And, you know, I think they would they would call it more than this, but, you know, to me, it's anti-harassment technology. And I just think that that is fresh. It's actually scary for a lot of people, you know, who are in positions of power in organizations that might, you know, feel like this could be abused to like, you know, target them. And which is funny because they're blocking it from being implemented for those types of reasons, probably. It is more of a tool to help you, you know, give your employees a, vo- a voice. It's designed to, you know, help people not just do whistle whistleblower type uh, things, but to, you know, to share their opinions and to provide feedback. So it's really a feedback tool, um, but it's totally anonymous and it's very cool. And I love what they're doing and it's long overdue. Every time I see them advancing or, you know, I'm cheering them on and that in combination with all the other you know, great technologies like Luna and Translator and, you know, all there's a whole suite of new on technologies with fresh entrepreneurs, you know, with a you know fresh take on all this. I'm very excited for the future, you know, the future of work, which is now, by the way. Which is now. Love it. Well, Natalie, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing all of your perspectives and your story with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Jess. It's great to see you and thank you for it's it's an honor and a privilege to be here. So thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, the, the honor is mine for sure. And thank you everyone else for listening in. And don't forget to stay fresh. 